Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. I'm delighted to share that our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Leona Tan. Leona is a senior research officer at the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, Australia. In the past decade, Leona has authored notable publications on workplace mental health and her research has influenced organisational policies across numerous industries. Her excellence in research has been recognised by many competitive awards, including the 2021 John Rafferty Early Career Award for Research in Traumatic Stress. Leona is also an experienced yoga teacher. She's currently completing her PhD on how mind and body interventions like the practice of yoga can prevent the development of trauma-related mental disorders in first responders. The tradition and practice of yoga has a rich and vibrant history, which originated in ancient India over 6,000 years ago, although truth be told, it may well be older than this. The practice of yoga is deeply connected to ancient Vedic philosophy and the spiritual traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. In the 1950s, 60s and 70s, teachers from across India brought yoga and meditation practices to the West and its popularity as a holistic approach to nourishing and supporting overall well-being has grown steadily ever since. For Leona and I, yoga is certainly one of our shared passions, and we have both witnessed the tremendous positive impact this practice has had on our own well-being, as well as those we have been fortunate enough to share this practice with over the years. While there are many aspects of yoga, from pranayama, which is focused breathing, to vakti, devotional practice, in this podcast, Leona shares specific research insights on the psychological benefits of yoga asanas, so those postures that are performed during a physical yoga practice, and the practice of meditation. We hope you enjoy this interview with the brilliant and insightful Leona Tan. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the various lands on which this podcast is recorded. We acknowledge their deep and ongoing spiritual connection to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders and leaders, past, present and emerging. And in doing so, we acknowledge and honour the spirit of Makarata and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Leona Tan, it's so wonderful to have you on the Mind Armour podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Leona, you've been working in workplace mental health for over a decade now, and that's where we met at the Black Dog Institute. What drew you into focusing your area of research on yoga and mental health? Um, well, you know, as you know, we, we started in the Black Dog Institute back in 2012, 10 years now, um, around the same time. And so my focus back then was really in uh, workplace mental health research. So focusing mostly in general workplaces and first responder mental health. In terms of yoga, I'd been practicing for many years, but, but to be perfectly honest, it just never occurred to me to look into the science or the research and the evidence behind yoga. I just all kind of just assumed that it was a different area. And as you know, my background is actually an organizational psychology and I come from very corporate consulting background mm. um, so I didn't think like that was going to be my focus my field it was more for psychophysiology or neuropsychology you know it didn't really have anything to do with my area of research even though it did pop up from time to time as I was looking at studies and the impact of, of uh, or what the evidence was for workplace mental health for employees um, but it just never occurred to me to look into it and it wasn't until I moved to New York a few years later um, and then a colleague of mine at the time knew that I was a yoga teacher 
And she knew I also had this background in first responder mental health. And then she just very casually suggested, maybe one day you could look into a first responder mental health and, mm-hmm. and, and yoga and just combine the two. And then I thought, that's actually a really good idea. I don't know why I never <laughs> thought about that. And then I literally just sat my computer and just started researching and Googling. And it wasn't until I came across this organization in the US that were literally called Yoga for First Responders that I started to think maybe I could do this as mm-hmm. research. And so I met this group. I did a teacher training with them and I got really excited from the experience and meeting to what other first responders did and talking to yoga teachers and people in the community, in that first responder community. And I thought maybe I could do a PhD about this, mm-hmm. which is, which was really funny because I'd never wanted to do a PhD ever. And then and and people also say, you know, and I think you maybe even warned me about this. You, know, you don't really want to do a PhD unless you're really interested and passionate about the topic. So, yeah. And I was really interested in that. Um, and so when I came back to Sydney, then I decided that this was this was for me, and this was the path that I was going to just dive mm-hmm. into because I was really interested in this area of research and how it could and how yoga could be specifically applied. Mm-hmm. Um, to this occupational group who experienced trauma on a regular basis so that's that's kind of how I got into it fantastic it's kind of like following the breadcrumbs a little bit by the sounds of it exactly just following and see where it leads me yeah I love that what you so before you did that specific training we'll get back to that in a moment for yoga for first responders you did core yoga teacher training as well what drew you to doing that training because I know it's I, I've done something similar and there I do think everyone has a little bit of their own journey in terms of to go off and do learn how to become a teacher off it as a, as a, a commitment yeah. you know <laughs> it is it is absolutely um yeah so I'd, I'd done yoga for many many years quite inconsistently um and then a little bit more consistently in my late 20s early 30s um, and I thought about doing yoga teacher training but never really had the time because of full-time work and other interests that I had and and it wasn't again until I was in New York. And then as part of my visa requirement, I had to apply and wait for an employment authorization card in order to work. And that was going to take mm-hmm. a few months. And then I thought, well, I might as well do what I always wanted to do, yoga teacher training. Nice. And so I did that. I started my 200-hour immersive training and just started from then. I did like different certifications and trainings after that and teaching and, and learn, learning at the same time. You know, I'll train, teach and learn, share whatever and it was you know I was I feel really grateful and really really lucky to be able to have that experience especially in New York City where I had access to so many teachers from Mm -hmm. so many different styles and backgrounds and then also to be able to learn and train in different settings and teach in different settings you know from clinical populations of people with mental illness to uh, senior citizens general community uh, corporate yoga I was literally teaching in the financial district of Wall Street. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was an experience. And, you know, in, in Midtown as well, and just everywhere in Brooklyn and the Upper West Side and all over, really. And it was just such a fantastic, like a, a playground, really, for mm-hmm. yoga to to just ex- be able to have that experience. And, that, and I think that was also my inspiration, was that once you're in this world, it's such a an experience of being part of a community of like-minded people and you have that shared experience and that connection with people that sort of understand this mm. journey that you're on and it was just so inspirational and I'm really really grateful and, and lucky to have that and so it's been 
it's been awesome to be able to do that in my work, bring that experience into my work as well and research. So that's kind of how it, it started. You have a lived experience yeah. of this practice before you started researching it. Yeah. I think that's a pretty powerful thing to do. Not everyone has that in their research, that approach to their research. Yeah. And also working with all those different groups. That's really interesting too. You're probably witnessing the same benefits to a lot of different groups. So people may not always see the similarities or the common humanity, but maybe as a teacher, you're seeing that a lot. uh, Yes, exactly. Experiencing the same benefits as someone who works on Wall Street as well as someone who's struggling with depression. Exactly. And I think that was the, the sense too that was people were just so grateful, you know, no mm. matter where, what their background is, um, you know, what, what kind of population they were from, people were just so grateful that someone was there to just be there for them and just mm-hmm. offer some form of support and just give them that space and time and just like support them. I didn't even have to do much sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, they were just really grateful to be able to have that. And so be able to, to be part of that. Their experience was really wonderful and inspiring. That's awesome, Leona. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you've discovered through reading different research articles and preparing your uh, review paper that you're currently getting ready to submit for publication. What have you learned so far about the psychological benefits of yoga? Yeah, so there, it's really interesting field. You know, as, as you and I know, mind-body practices like yoga have been around for thousands of years. Like we don't mm. even know the origins. And in the field of science and medicine is just starting to catch up and explore its impact in scientific studies. Um, and so there's a lot of research out there on mind-body practices like yoga, mindfulness and yoga. But the problem with a lot of this research is that you have to dig through and find those high quality trials, which actually is is quite lacking, to be mm. honest. I mean, the, the, the high quality trials of yoga research is still very sparse. But what's great is that there are more and more studies that are starting to use the right methodology in terms Mm. of the gold standard of randomized control trials. And so there have been reviews in that. And what I have been able to find is that there has definitely been evidence to show based on these randomized control trials that yoga is able to help with depression, with anxiety, with post-traumatic stress, as well as promote well-being and life satisfaction. Mm. Um, Again, there's the caveat of, you know, some of these publications these studies may not have that kind of sample size that's adequate to find um, this kind of effect but in general that's kind of what we're seeing Um, there's still a lot more that needs to be done for it to be recommended as you know uh, a first in line treatment for depression Mm. anxiety but definitely Mm -hmm. it is recommended and certainly used in clinical populations Mm. as a form of supplementary treatment Mm -hmm. Um, because it also doesn't have adverse side effects as you might Mm. see from other forms of treatment for Mm -hmm. um, mental health problems so it's quite a safe option for people. And that's also probably why it's growing in popularity so much. So that that's what I'm finding in general in terms of um, the impact on mental health. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, at Mindharma, what we find in our webinars um, when we're talking about proactive and nourishing self-care, where you're really setting up an action plan to really care for your mind and your body, 
that's where yoga does show up for a lot of people or those mind-body practices like Tai Chi as well. Um, and people do really connect with that sense of, it's almost like mindful movement. Like sometimes people don't see yoga. Movement in, way, in meditation. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's its own practice, yeah. its own mindfulness practice. So do you feel that maybe it would be beneficial for people to consider it as actually a form of self-care that really builds your cup over time and protects your mental health in that in that way? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think what's really missing in a lot of conventional mental health care options is the integration of the physical with the mental health. I think mm. when you talk about mental health, people often think that it's you know, something that's more about your mind and your emotions, but mm. kind of forget the aspect and the impact on your body. And that's certainly the case with um, PTSD as well. Like it's not just solely mm. a mental health problem, there's impact to your your physical health as well. Mm. Um, and a lot of people who have PTSD also suffer from, you know, um, pain, uh, weakness and, and other sorts of um, physical symptoms as well. So I think yoga as this form of uh, mental as well as physical uh, strategy is mm. really crucial and really helpful for people, not just for PTSD, but also other um, you know, mental health problems as well. Because it's also another way of understanding how the body is mm. interacting with the mind. With PTSD, for example, I'm, and I'm just focusing on PTSD because it's my area of research, we know that yoga is a very attractive option for a lot of people because it is firstly very appealing. You know, that mm. 50% of veterans, for example, are really interested in complementary mental health approaches, especially things like yoga, mindfulness, meditation. And what it does is it's able to target these mechanisms that are modifiable, these, these, these mechanisms that are actually risk factors for PTSD. Mm. So, for example, um, cognitive appraisal so the way you appraise a stressor so whether you think it's bad for you or good for you um, if generally if you're quite negative about stresses then that can kind of impact mm. um, or it's a risk factor shown to be a risk factor for um, developing PTSD symptoms mm. um, and so the mindfulness part is what differentiates I think yoga from a lot of other physical activity that's out there like aerobics or mm. um you know, the high intensity training and whatnot, mm. because that mindfulness aspect is able to target those cognitive processes, the emotional processes, which are all implicated in the pathophysiology of PTSD. Mm. And what's also really good about that is it also targets um, the body and mm. how we perceive and feel and tolerate sensation of the body mm. so um, one of the things that comes up a lot in people with PTSD is they have trouble uh, regulating arousal or they don't feel sensation mm. so with with yoga you know we ask people to focus their breath and focus on specific points of the body you know like pressing down the ball of your foot into the ground um, notice um, the sensation of you know uh, whatever it is whether it's pressing your belly down onto the floor in cobra pose and things like that mm. um, you know it's getting them to focus their attention and control mm. their attention. But at the same time, uh, it's a process of decentering where you're distancing yourself from your thoughts 
mm-hmm. without any judgment. So just mm-hmm. observing. So mm-hmm. it's a fantastic sort of slowed approach of integrating the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very different from conventional mental health, mm-hmm. uh, like talk therapies, for example, which has its purpose and its benefits, of course, but just it's just a different way for people who also have those physical uh, yeah. symptoms. Yeah. It's, you know, I think there are similarities to some of the third wave therapies like compassion focused therapy and mindfulness based therapy and even, you know, yoga nidra that's been taken into clinical settings like iris yoga nidra, where there is this sense of compassion towards the body, a reorientation of your um, where are you feeling these emotions or even thoughts in your body, like really feeling into that link and honoring it and really supporting the body. What does this part of your body need right now? And I think it is, it does warrant more and more research, but there's some wonderful work being done in this space in terms of um, helping people to process through their bodies what they have experienced. And I think a lot of people who are familiar with that trauma therapy will note that whole adage, the body holds the trauma or the body keeps the score. So exactly. Like yeah. written on it. And that's right. Yeah. It's quite it's quite remarkable, Leona, too. Like I've had experiences in my when I did yin teacher training where I, I was talking about this with you earlier, but just noticing how much tension the body holds, even when you think your body um is relaxed. And exactly. then oh and then and even you can have these phenomenal emotional releases. I mean, not everyone has that, but I think a lot of people who've journeyed with these practices for quite some time, they'll all have their own story of I had this emotional release during a practice that I maybe wasn't even expecting. So there's physiological release of tension from the body, but there's also maybe a an emotional discharge, something that the body had been holding on to for quite some time. I, I witnessed that in other teachers over the years too. And then, well, what do we do then with that emotion when it, when it emerges? I think that's where some of that mindfulness and self-compassion plays a really important role. What's your take on that? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. I think there is still a lot more research and so many questions that we still don't know the answers to. And there hasn't, there's only been very few high quality studies in terms of understanding how exactly there's these form of mind body practices, um, you know, impact what's going on in the body and in, in, in terms of holding tension and things like mm. that. It's very difficult to study, of course. Mm. Um, but I think what's also really interesting is just the connection of breath and body is mm. so profound mm. um, that they they are able to study that in in, in studies like um, heart rate variability studies, mm. for example. And, you know, you have these sort of like um, rods that are connected to the body, and be able to see the the fluctuations of the heart rate. And what they can see is just just from a slower, regular pace breathing that people are trained to do over time, Mm. um, you can see immediately that it improves the autonomic nervous system, Mm. you know, the involuntary control, which is responsible for so many bodily functions. Mm. Um, And that itself, it's like, you know, when I've and I've heard this before, so I didn't come up with someone else that I don't exactly remember who you know refers to the autonomic um, nervous system you know kind of like a car where you need the accelerator as well as the brakes mm. and to be able to function well you need both you can't just have one or the other so mm. you need that kind of regulation to be able to respond to stresses you need to and be able to rest and recover as you need to mm. and so I'm kind of rambling on here but that's kind of the 
I, I believe what's so remarkable about these kind of practices that focus on the body is that it regulates your entire system mm. in order for you to be able to function well and so profound in that way. And you're still uncovering, you know, little bits of it over time, but it, it's 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 an exciting area of research that we're we're kind of just getting to the tip of the iceberg, really. Absolutely. And thankfully, mm. um, just like what you mentioned at the top of the session is that it is gaining more, um, I guess, respect in um, medical settings as well. And when, when that shift starts to happen, that's where more research funding is available to researchers to dive a bit deeper, <laughs> as we know. You know that's, yeah. what, that's one of the biggest challenges for people to take these practices seriously um, and to allow that, that funding and those resources to uncover those um, jewels of wisdom that come through research like yours. I think that like what you were describing too, I know at Mandharma when we're teaching mindfulness in um, our core mindfulness webinar series, we'll often dive into just what you were describing and, and spend a little more time on what the science is now saying about the vagus nerve, which wasn't really well understood even a decade ago, but how those mind-body practices and particularly mindful breathing just has this really beautiful impact on our vagus nerve, which then has just what you were describing, this profound positive ripple effect on the whole body. And that's where there's a lot of mystery. Like, well, what else? What else is actually happening there? I think it's good. <laughs> I'm I fascinated. I want to know. <laughs> I know. I don't know yet. I still yeah. don't know. We just know yeah. it's good. It's good. And it's positive. <laughs> we should all be doing it a lot more. Um, now, I want to get back to some other important questions here that I have for you, uh, which are include what is getting in the way of people giving these practices a go? Because I I used to hear this from friends years ago when I was getting into yoga and I'd done martial arts for many, many years in Ireland before coming to Australia. And yoga was the only thing I found that really helped me stay in the present moment and provide that bit of challenge, but also was nourishing at the same time. And I wanted everyone to come and join me and people would respond to me, no, I'm not flexible enough for that. Even go like, well, that's exactly why <laughs> you don't have to be flexible. It's <laughs> I know, or I can't touch my toes. That's another one that I hear a lot. It's like, it's yeah. not for me. I can't touch. I can't even touch my toes. That's yeah. I think the biggest barriers I would say is just if you go on Google right now and you just typed in yoga and looked at the images that come up, ninety mm. percent of those images are all of, firstly, women. Caucasian mm. women who are very slim, physically slim, um, wearing tight-fitted clothing, doing, you know, all sorts of poses that require this degree of flexibility. And so just having those images alone as a, as, as a representation of what yoga is, is not really helpful. And I think it's actually a barrier to what, to, to many people thinking that, oh, I don't look like that. And so subconsciously or consciously, they just decide it's not for me because, you know, yoga seems to be for this type of person. Yes. Um, and so it excludes a lot of people just from mm -hmm. that alone. And I think that's really doesn't do any justice to what yoga is about and who it's for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was originated in India. It was designed by men for men originally. So mm -hmm. where are the men in these pictures? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and why do people have to be wearing tight-fitted clothing to do <laughs> yoga? It's not necessary. Good point. <laughs> you know, so, and you don't even need a mat to do yoga, really. Um, so it's become quite, it's, it's, it's obviously brought over from, from India and then West nice and you know i don't necessarily want to go into the history of yoga and western yoga and whatnot but i think that's one of the biggest barriers is that 
these images alone that you see, whether it's in the internet and social media and marketing materials, it kind of um, excludes a lot of people who really, really need it. And so mm-hmm. I feel like the yoga community out there, they have the responsibility to kind of try and change that. Um, yeah. I know that we, um, the mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, which is you know quite well established now, has started in clinical populations and hospitals, and now it's gone on. And there's a lot of research behind it to, to show the evidence behind its impact and how the positive effects from it. In their book and their protocol, they make it a point to show images of people from different shapes, sizes, colors, you know, to show that this is not just for a certain type of person, it's for everyone. Yes. Um, so I think that's the biggest barrier, really. That's a really important point because it's also a barrier to mindfulness meditation. That that like the images when you Google search mindfulness or when I did a number of years ago, it was remarkable. It's everyone sitting in a certain cross-legged position, doing a mudra. Their hands are in a <laughs> in a certain looking very zen, but not actually the truth of the matter that their minds are probably feeling quite chaotic in that moment. But Simon Rosenbaum, who is on the podcast a little while ago, Associate Professor Simon Rosenbaum from UNSW. I know you know Simon, and he does a lot of research on movement and mental health and the um, the benefits of exercise and mental health. And he introduced me to a term called FITSPO that I hadn't really come across before, but that it sounds like this, <laughs> this is really similar. It's like, um, and I could imagine if you were on any social media platform and you put in yoga, you're going to get a quality of that. And I love that you're highlighting that in the yoga arena, there is a responsibility here to highlight that it's for everyone. It's not just for people who look fantastic on Instagram or or looking a certain way um, or projecting. And of course, we don't even know if that's reality because everyone uses a billion filters these days as well. <laughs> exactly. I've heard of the Fitspo as well, but I don't really know, you know, the, the true meaning or what it really entails. But I imagine, you know, it's kind of like that fitness inspiration, fitness yes. goals kind of thing. Exactly. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm in two minds about it. Like on one hand, that just kind of puts me off because this is not reflective of what it is and what, who it's for. But on the other hand, you know, if it's, you know, going to inspire someone to start their journey of yoga, then, you know, great. You know, yeah. I heard someone say to me once, uh, a yoga teacher say to me, um, that sometimes you just need to sprinkle a bit of cheese in the broccoli, but at least they're eating broccoli. So uh-huh. if but it gets they, them there. <laughs> they, they may have had kids because that, that would have definitely worked for me when I was younger. Cheese on anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I mean. I'm not against social media, of course, I'm not completely against these images and, but, you know, you know, if it does inspire, but I just think that we need more of these other sorts of images that are more reflective of what it's for, who it's for, which is for everybody really. Um, But at the same time, you know, if that gets someone in the door, whether it's, they have acrobatic goals or whatnot you know absolutely sometimes it's just a matter of just getting them in there so they can experience it for themselves and suddenly go oh actually I feel kind of different from this and maybe it's not just about being able to wrap my leg around my neck like something else here you know absolutely (laughs) and I do think there are some forms of yoga in particular yin yoga and restorative a lot of that practice is done with eyes closed and the emphasis is on like what you were saying, just how are you feeling it in your body rather than a, the asana or that posture looking a certain way? 
And, and some of them do look really beautiful when you see a full bow and someone's really honed that over the years. Like, wow, that's taken training and input. But also it can be just their physiological makeup that allows their body to do that exactly. a bit easier. And sometimes that's not talked about. But these other practices, sometimes they're the, the tradition is more on the felt sense rather than getting caught up on how it looks or how does it feel in the body. I think that's really powerful yeah. now nowadays more than ever before, perhaps. Exactly. And I think it's also a generational thing. You see mm. that the younger people are kind of more interested, younger people are generally more interested in in being able to do the acrobatic, you know, mm. postures, um, you know, the handstands, the headstands, inversions and that's kind of the goal and that's what they want, you know, and then you see the, uh, the older population are kind of there. They get it. They get it. Mm. They've experienced life. They know, yeah. they know what they're looking for. I think. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And what was yeah. the other barrier that you were going to, before I jumped in, um, what was your other barrier that you've noticed, Leo? I know that for people sometimes gets in the way of them engaging and, and, and maybe even just showing up to a class for the first time. 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 Oh. time. I think mm. that's, you know, what is a big barrier for so many people to just participate in self-care. Mm. Um, don't have time. I've got a million things to do. I've got, you know, this and that. And really what people just need is just a really small amount of time. Just it, it mm. only takes sometimes is just two minutes of breathing, deep breathing. And mm. I've heard a lot of people say to me, I don't need someone to teach me how to breathe. I know how to do it by myself. I'm like, that's great. Obviously you do know how to breathe. You wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> um, but, you know, just the fact that they said that kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can tell you really need it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm. Yes. But, you know, it's, it's the type of breathing and the not really understand i think people also just don't have that understanding of 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 how the breath and we we just spoke about this before earlier about how the breath is so profound and how it is able to regulate our nervous system and just the time that is involved is not a lot i think you know when we think of yoga and the yoga classes that are out there in studios and gym generally they are about an hour right mm. and so you're like well, i don't have an hour i don't mm. have you know but if we could kind of spread the message that all it, it needs is, you know, you know two minutes. Yeah. That's all you need. You can do it in the bathroom. You don't even need a mat. You can do it in your chair. You can do it in your desk. You can do it anywhere in the subway and do it mm. in the train, anywhere, really. It's just, it, you don't need a mat. You don't need any of those things that they show you yeah. <laughs> get on the internet, yeah. social media. You just need your breath. As long as you have your breath, you're doing yoga. You, you can do yoga. This is such an important point, though, because I think that's often lost in and has been lost in the, I guess, maybe it's, as you were saying, it's the marketing of it, because um, it is a huge industry when you look it at is, the clothing yeah. and the, the props. And the mm -hmm. and if you're if you're really part of that community, I think it can initially it can be quite overwhelming. What am I supposed to get to be a really good student of this practice? You know, you and I both know from studying the different yoga sutras is that what yoga was traditionally aimed at doing is not just creating a healthy physical body, but preparing the mind and the body for that deeper rest and also meditation, that deep practice of engaging in your inner world of thoughts and emotions in this kind of mindful, compassionate, non-judgmental matter way, I guess. Do you think that's our biggest barrier too, that people, we sometimes, not to take away from the asanas because they're wonderful, but people have really big preconceived notions about what yoga should be. 
Russ says, well, actually, the end goal is very simple. Yes. And I think also, you know, people don't know what yoga mm. really, the true meaning behind meaning, unless you do your yoga teacher training, unless you learn about it, you do your homework, you do, you educate yourself really. And yoga asana in a Sanskrit word um, for the physical posture is really, asana itself is just means seat, mm. like literally to sit. And But it's so difficult for people to just sit mm. and do nothing else mm. um, and be with their thoughts and just breathe. Um, it's not something we're used to. It's not something we're trained. Nobody teaches how to do that. Nobody tells us that it's important to do that. And it's really difficult to do. And then I think what yeah, the, the point of yoga asana, the physical postures and the m- mindful uh, movement is mm. that it helps prepare the body to get all that energy up and out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because we've got so much going on throughout the day. We're moving around. It's it's going to be hard, you know, fair enough. It's hard for everybody, mm. you know, you, whether you're a yoga teacher or not, it's going to be hard for you, everybody to, to kind of quiet the mind, quiet the body. So we need to move that energy in a way. So that's why we have this practice of, of yoga so that we can move it in a mindful way to help prepare and set us up for that really important profound practice of just sitting with ourselves sitting with our thoughts because that's when we learn so much Mm. about who we are Mm -hmm. Um, it's not from necessarily the the mindful movement i mean that is that that's its purpose is to help set us up for this more profound practice Mm. Um, but it's so difficult to do we just we just don't know how to do it Oh, that's that's very true. That whole concept yeah. of being with ourselves and being with our breath or befriending that experience and that um I think in my dharma, I know we often highlight this as, you know, it's it's really awkward initially. Like and that's okay. That's where yeah. all the self-compassion is and it will feel a bit strange. And I think over time people do learn how to sit with themselves and they real and then there's an acknowledgement wow there's a lot more movement in my mind today or my body really benefited from that posture that's interesting like you were saying when they're sitting and reflecting afterwards there's a lot of wisdom inner wisdom that starts to emerge um i do i just wanted to ask you too about um those practices around supporting first responders so there's been this yoga um i guess specific postures that have been i guess researched or looked at by for yoga for first responders that seem to have a particular impact for people who have worked in these high risk occupations or they're they're now recovering or on a healing journey from that experience of cumulative trauma. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of first responders that would not meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. But when you speak with them, they'll go, oh, yeah, my body is holding some of that stuff. You know, they're they're pre pre diagnostic, I guess, but they they're just under that threshold. But they're still trying to navigate life, having, you know, worked in a really full on job for many years. What is the research saying about this is kind of diving back into your PhD of mm-hmm. it? You know, what yeah. why what what is this particular practice? Because we have a lot of first responders on the Mind Dharma program. I know some of them love their yoga practice. So um can you share a little bit about what you've discovered and your teacher training in that particular practice? Absolutely. So my research is specifically looking into that. Um so looking to see um at mind-body practices 
and if it's able to prevent the development of PTSD amongst people who have been exposed to trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I've done a review on that that I've just completed to look at all the evidence, all the studies that have um, used mind-body um, exercises, I'm calling it, because it integrates the mindfulness component together with um, physical activity, physical movement. So it's not necessarily yoga, it can be Tai Chi, but um, when I did find the studies, it's actually what came up and what the the, the studies that have looked into this were actually um, studies that have used yoga either as a standalone intervention, so generally that mindful movement or movement meditation, um, as well as a sitting meditation component. So that's generally what I mean when I say standalone yoga. Mm. Um, there are also studies on yoga as part of a broader intervention. So say like mindfulness-based uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, where they integrate that um, CBT together with yoga, so gentle mm. yoga mostly, um, or mindfulness-based stress reduction program, that eight-week program that's quite uh, well-known and quite well-researched at this point. So that would include the yoga, the gentle yoga component, as well as a meditation component. And it also includes group discussions, facilitated groups, discussions with a trained facilitator or instructor um, over this eight-week period, which is how long mm. did, that's a duration of the MBSR program. And so when I pulled together all these studies and looked at its impact, what I found was that these interventions are able to actually reduce PTSD symptoms among this population group mm. that haven't been diagnosed with PTSD, but they have been exposed to trauma mm. and have some symptoms. Mm. Um, so that in itself was a really interesting finding. And then when I broke it down a little bit further to look at what type of um, mind-body exercise, looking at the type and the impact of each type, um, there weren't a lot of studies, obviously, so I could only find like a, a small number. But what I did find is that the interventions that included yoga as part of a broader intervention like MBSR, these had stronger effects than mm -hmm. the ones that did it as a standalone. And that itself was a really interesting finding to yes. me because that suggests then that, you know, if you've been, if you've had experienced trauma in your life, what seems to be helpful is not just going to a, a yoga class and doing that yoga and meditation. That is helpful to a certain extent, but what seems to be more helpful is it also has this additional component, that group discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's several reasons for this. So first of all, I think what's helpful about having that group discussion is it contextualizes your learning. So you're able to share with the group, with the facilitator, with your peers about how this can apply to your life because a component of those group discussions involves dialogue and inquiry, much like you would see in therapy and talk therapy, mm. um, which is very similar to that and has been also shown to be able to change cognitive processes and emotional processes. Mm. Um, and so that's really important, I think, to be able to have that shared experience with other people. And it's also really helpful to do in a group, I think, because a lot of people who have been traumatized often talk about feelings of isolation and yeah. loneliness. And so to be able to do that and share that experience with group and normalize, you know, that experience is really helpful for a lot of people. Um, and I think the other thing that's also really helpful is that 
the group element kind of enables this sense of belonging connection yes. to a community, you know, yes. which is very much akin to support groups mm-hmm. in clinical settings. Mm-hmm. And we know from the evidence from PTSD that social support is a very potent, a protective factor yeah. and, uh, for, for reducing PTSD amongst adults who have been exposed to trauma. So that, that I found was was really, really interesting. And then in terms of for first responders and what's helpful for them, because not only are they a group that have been exposed to trauma, they have to keep doing it despite mm-hmm. all, you know, that's mm-hmm. it's part of their job. They just have yes. to keep going. It's ongoing trauma, ongoing exposure to trauma and never knowing, you know, so much uncertainty job, what the next call is going to involve, um, what the shift, what the next shift is going to entail, what it's, you know, what the emergency is going to be. Um, so they really put themselves out in the line. And what is really interesting about this group that I'm collaborating with in the US, Yoga for First Responders, is they've come up with a protocol that is job-specific and culturally mm-hmm. informed. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is it removes the sort of woo-woo <laughs> that we <laughs> often know in yoga, yeah. which has its purpose and which I actually really enjoy. But, you know, it, it can also turn a lot of people off who aren't yes. um familiar with it so you know sanskrit the language is really just an ancient language just like latin but a lot of people might think it's you know there's a religious connotation to it I'm not sure that's for me I'm not really interested mm, in that mm. um so what they've done is again it's a bit like the cheese and the broccoli yeah you know yeah. <laughs> they've 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 put it in a way where it's appealing for first yes. responders so mm. all their instructors are well-informed and well-immersed in the first responder culture. So it started by Olivia Mead, who's the founder and CEO of Yoga First Responders. Um, she started initially teaching yoga and general community to veterans. Mm. Um, and then she immersed herself in police academy training, mm. in firefighter training, uh, put herself through those, those recruitment schools, did all the training that was required that all the other first responders do so that they could she could speak the same language as them. Yeah. And so yeah. what she's done is she She's put it in a way where it's she's she's used the techniques of uh, mindfulness meditation, which they refer to as neurological reset. Physical drills are the yoga sequences and and tactical skills, and sort of put it all together in a format that's very accessible and easy for first responders to to relate to. You know, for example, using. Trigger discipline, for example, is a, is a word that she uses in terms of how you kind of self-regulate and be able to uh, make decisions and be mm. calm under pressure or using um, yoga sequences for ladder drills for firefighters, for example. Mm. Um, she also teaches yoga classes to firefighters, sometimes making them use these blast masks so they restrict your beating, but also teach you the importance of breath control so that you manage mm. air consumption you know, and, and doing it in full bunker gear mm. or, you know, using very specific language that is very specific to that culture. And so they yeah. can apply it on the job and off the job. And so I think that was really, really helpful and really interesting to be able to see how people were, how she was able to take all her training, all her, uh, her, her wisdom <laughs> and her experience of yoga that she got from the general community and from veterans and be able to apply that to the specific population. Mm. Um, and it's not just, you know, it's it's a strong practice for them, but it also has um, a component of yin yoga for that restorative mm. feeling. Because, oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's not just about, you know, the cheese and the broccoli. It's also about the broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> it's what yeah. they need at times. After a very long shift and they're exhausted, they might not want to be able to do, they might not be able to 
be able to, you know, do another downward dog or a no, sun salutation. Absolutely. You know, it's about yeah. just lying, sitting still, just restoring the body again, applying the brakes to the nervous mm-hmm. system, slowing mm-hmm. things down so you can rest and digest, activating that parasympathetic nervous system yes. response. Yeah, so it's it's a fantastic combination that's specifically applied to first responders. I'm really interested and excited to see the impact of this training. So I'm doing that in, in a variety of ways. So we're currently doing a randomized controlled trials with first responders in, in, in Colorado in the US. Um, as that's where the uh, yoga first responders group, mm. where, that's where they're based. And so we're doing a trial there currently on the way. We finished recruitment. Um, they're doing the training as we speak right now. And so I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. Um, and we've also completed an online study of the same program, but just using an online program. Mm-hmm. Um, that's partly also for practical reasons because of COVID. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Last yeah. Years where we weren't able to do anything face-to-face, mm. sadly, or in person. And, and also to test out that online component to see what it works. Yeah. So, so that's really exciting stuff that we're that's doing awesome. my PhD. And I yeah. think that's a really valid point too, because a lot of people, even pre-COVID, were accessing and continue to access the yoga practice online. I know my own brother has a very strong practice that he started several years ago through the same teacher that teaches a particular sequence online and it's made it clearly accessible to him in the way he works and I think that's one of the gifts of technology as much as yes. technology there are some downsides <laughs> of course but that is one of its gifts that this exactly makes it really accessible as you said to everybody and anybody um, yep. that wants to explore and in the privacy of their own homes too exactly maybe. yeah yeah they're coming off shift yeah and and one of the questions also that we haven't been able to explore but it's really interesting for any future research too is to be able to know understand a little bit more about who exactly is accessing these mm. online mm. um uh, programs too because we don't quite know is it a, an accessibility issue you know is it more because it's it's easy or is it also people maybe you know especially with ptsd some people might be more reluctant to do in-person programs and and there's comfort in being able to do this in privacy in your own home as you say too so that that is an interesting question too that that you know needs, needs some more yeah more research on yeah it's interesting too because you did did mention but the time barrier and we've mm. certainly seen that in the research at mind dharma as we can co- continue to collect, collect data that sometimes it's time and in our original research the modules were about 20 minutes and now they're cut back to 10 or 15 minutes based on feedback from first responders. So that time element is really, seems to be really crucial. Um, I just want to circle back to what you were sharing too about yin and restorative aspect of yoga for first responders. And I think that really speaks to this bigger, and we've touched on this in terms of self-care, but this bigger question of why is self-care a huge barrier for people working in service to others' occupations. So not just first responders, but it's definitely something I witnessed in my private practice over the years. People who are teachers, who are medical health professionals, who are working in mental health, social workers, paramedics, fireys, they have a tendency to constantly put the well-being of others or their work first and foremost. And this idea, like it's very easy for their self-care to be almost seen as selfish. Like they they can be really hard on themselves. Oh, I'll get to that eventually. And just by virtue of that, it puts us at greater risk of burnout, 
common mental health conditions, higher levels of stress, because we're just we're almost forgetting our own bodies and beings in service to being someone who works in service. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky one. I know we talk about it a lot at Mind Dharma too in our webinar series. How do we give ourselves permission to take care of our own mind and minds and bodies, whether it's through yoga or other practices? And what have you witnessed? In, it's in- really, really hard. I think especially, you know, in COVID, um, we certainly saw that with healthcare workers who mm-hmm. had so such high demands that they had to meet um, the first responders that, you know, it wasn't, I mean, of course, it's it's a global pandemic and, you know, certain things had to be done. It was all about getting through in the moment. And sometimes it's, you know, some people would say, I'm not resistant to, to self-care. I just don't have the time. Again, it's, it comes mm-hmm. back to that time and time and time mm-hmm. and always time. And it's hard too when there are external pressures, whether it's from work, whether it's from, you know, ma- you know your manager or your family, or yeah, your spouse, or your partner, or your child, you know, and mm. children don't know anything about, you know, giving other people time. So, you know, it's really difficult for people to be able to find that time for self-care, even when they want to, mm. um, even when they know they need it, but they just, it's really difficult to understand how that's going to work. And I think it's the silver lining from the pandemic, I guess, is people were a lot more aware of the impact on mental health and Mm -hmm. a lot more kinder, I think, to other people um, and a lot more understanding on the the pressures of the moment. You know, there's there's a bit more flexibility with work, you know, that Mm -hmm. we saw in terms of people obviously had to work from home for a certain time because we didn't really have a choice. And I think maybe now we're starting to see, you know, a lot of people are reluctant to go back to the office yes, too, you know, true. they're like, yeah. why, why should I, we're, we, you know, we know that working online remotely kind of works for us. I don't have to put myself through an hour of traffic, you know, oh. driving back and forth and whatnot, you know, that's an, and that's a type of self-care in a way, just being able to acknowledge that in Absolutely. some way. So, Absolutely. you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely feel like the conversation is changing, but it's still really difficult because of the pressures of the moment. Mm-hmm. I don't really know the answers to that, to be honest, because it's it's challenging one for a lot of people. It's challenging one for people who have very demanding jobs um, and depend on that job for their livelihood. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if they've got a lot of conflict between what's going on at home and what's going on at work it's just difficult for them to see to even be able to see how to get past all that and find the time for themselves Um, but I think it certainly helps when it becomes more of a systemic intervention where the workplace um, is able to give that to people so in the black dog institute for example we were gifted a couple of extra days leave over the the easter break and i think that was helpful for so many people who didn't get to enjoy christmas because we were all stuck in isolation or sick from covid or whatnot so i think in in having that shift in culture in the way we work Mm. um can really help Mm. you know kind of give people a bit of time back to themselves so it's not just about you know people finding not able to find the time for themselves but it's also about employers and mm. and, and the you know having policies in place that can actually allow people to have that time for themselves because it impacts everyone absolutely and i you know i've i have witnessed too over the years with the different groups that we've had the opportunity to work with over several years that that 
how they are improving their workplace mental health strategy, that they keep listening and learning. There are some of the, I think, the big positives, as you said, out of the pandemic too, and empowering people. Like I guess what the Black Dog did is give extra time to people after such a tough time. That's a very compassionate action to take for your thinking about the long-term well-being of your workforce. What I find fascinating is that everyone benefits from self-care. You know, that's what that's the harder part. And when we're teaching it at Mindarma, I put up some research that was conducted in Australia and I think it was overseas as well, that when you looked at particularly healthcare workers, this particular piece of research, when their self-care became more proactive and they let go, they were actively letting go of the idea of it being selfish, the quality of their care just went up a notch. And sometimes people, I've noticed particularly in service to others, especially in the first responder arena, they're more likely to really prioritise their self-care when they acknowledge the benefits of the, it to their work and their family. So again, it's almost those values will still be first and foremost. They're still not putting themselves first, but they may put themselves, their self-care in the top three actions and they're doing it more because they're seeing and trusting the long-term benefits to the quality of their work their relationships everything the in ripple life. effects the yeah. big ripple effect mm. but again a lot of it's very easy for self-care to slip so i think um you know yoga mm. can form part of a foundational part of the movement part of self-care you know nutrition movement sleep um yep. monitoring how we engage on social media is probably a big one that other layer of self-care that's now starting to emerge, oh, what we yes. watch, listen, etc. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of similarities between self-care and yoga in terms of a long-term practice. Maybe yoga becomes part of your longer-term self-care practice because you know it really fills your cup. But it is, it's almost we're needing to change how we view it. Like this is a lifelong practice and there'll be times we'll be really terrible at it. There'll be times where our kids need us because they're big values being a parent. And then other times where we'll have it'll be a bit we'll have a bit more if you like time is the essence, essential quality here of giving ourselves permission to make a priority. But I wanted to circle back to what you're saying a moment ago about workplaces and their maybe say their responsibility towards their workforce. Let's talk about yoga in the workplace for a moment, because that's been around a long time and it's and it's very varied. You and I both know that, too. What's your take on that and what should workplaces really be looking for if they're going to implement a workplace mental health or a workplace health promotion program that features yoga as a core practice? What are your thoughts on that? What, what, what are your tips? That's really interesting. And I'd say, you know, yoga in the workplace have become really popular now, mm. um, kind of like a perk. And, you know, for maybe 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 two decades ago, it's sort of not really a thing. You don't really hear about it in workplaces. And then all of a sudden it became really popular. And now I think it's going through a kind of negative connotation with some people in some mm. workplaces and yeah. some mental health professionals enough. You know, I've heard them sort of say, oh, we can't just do yoga and fruit bowls. I know that's a big um, phrase. Everyone <laughs> loves throwing around that yes, statement. Like we're, we're doing serious things here because we don't do yoga <laughs> and fruit bowls anymore. I was exactly. like, okay, well, well, what exactly are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think there was even a conference for healthcare workers that was specifically called Not Yoga Conference. So it's like, wow, okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there is, I think, and I can kind of understand what you're saying is that, you know, yoga is not going to fix all the problems that we have. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
And that's true. So, to a certain extent, you can't, I think we have to be very real about what yoga can cannot do. It's an individual intervention. It's designed for people to be able to help cope with whatever it is that is going through with the, um, in their lives. But you can't expect yoga, like a downward dog, to be able to fix issues like retention, workflow issues, inefficient workflow, or workplace bullying, or, Absolutely. you know, we got to be real. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's yeah. It's not help. a tick the box approach. No, yeah. It's not. You're like, say, oh, we look after their well-being. We give them yoga. We give them fruit bowls. Well, no, it's not enough to do that. But we do know from the evidence in terms of what works for employees' mental health is a combination of these organizational strategies that do look into the workflow issues or uh, the retention issues, mm. or whether it's bullying or uh, high demands, low control, mm. um, those sorts of things. We need that as well as the individual level strategies. We need a combination of both. Yes. You know, it's not just one or the other. We need something at the very high level and we need something to be able to support employees as well. Um, so that's, I think, being able to have that holistic approach. And it's going to be different for every organization. There's no yes. one size fits all. Um, as we know, like, you know, if everyone did, yoga, I'm obviously a yoga teacher and workplace mental researcher. And I think if everybody did yoga and mindfulness, that would be awesome. <laughs> Solve yeah. a lot of problems. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, not yeah. everyone is going to go to a yoga class. Not everyone's going to go to a mindfulness meditation class. We can't expect them to, you know, we can't expect people who have very demanding high workloads, um, uh, a lot of high pressures in, uh, in the job, they're not necessarily going to have that time, even if mm. they wanted to, to be able to do that. And so we have to kind of get real about that. So it might not be appropriate for all workplaces. I guess, sure. you know, there's no one size fits all. Every organization is unique. And so it's really important that for people to be able to have this approach where they, first of all, sit down, identify what the issues are, what's going on, what the problems are, talk to the experts, talk to the researchers, talk to people who have been in this field, who understand it, um, look at the evidence and see mm -hmm. what works for this particular problem. Um, and there's, it's, it's growing so much as we speak, this research and workplace mental health, as you know, and in terms of what we can offer to people. And so there's there's a lot that we can do. It's just a matter of finding the time to both sit down and strategize and come together as a group, as leaders of an organization and management to be able to say, prioritize this. And I think the time is absolutely right for now, especially given the, what's happened in the last couple of years. Yes. You know, it's, it's a perfect opportunity to, to look at the way we work and to make those sorts of changes at the high level and also at the individual level. Yeah. That's a really good point. And it does come down to leadership, doesn't it? You know, mm -hmm. if, a, if a leader cares about the well-being of their workforce. And, and that's something we've witnessed too, you know, well-being managers who work really, really hard. You know, they're a subgroup that probably warrant a whole bunch of workplace mental health research on just that group <laughs> who are really often coming from other professions, you know, being teachers or nurses or have had completely different. And then they've genuinely entered into the space wanting to make a difference but often they're not resourced appropriately or there are huge expectations of well-being managers during COVID too to work miracles it's like oh and health and safety professionals too here's your health and safety professional who's now given the portfolio of workplace mental health which you and I can appreciate is a, is a whole specialty yes. but what a huge um 
extra layer of responsibility to put on someone who may not have the resources. And that's something, again, it just comes down to leadership. We've certainly witnessed those well-being managers and teams whose CEO um, or that executive leadership team who really support them. My God, they make such a big difference in the workplace because they're being appreciated and given the resources to implement long term. Mm. And like you said, go through that review strategy and look at the evidence again and be mindful that things change. Um, yep. But not everyone's getting that yet. Like I'm hoping that, I mean, you and I started 10 years ago. There wasn't a lot happening in this arena. No, there wasn't. There weren't yeah. even any conferences. Now there's like a hundred no, conferences. I know. Workplace it's mental like health. explosion now. We've done it so is. well. <laughs> People it's listening am- to us. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Let me just get back to a little bit more yoga stuff while I have you, Leona. Um, so a couple of years ago, it's not that long ago that you had your daughter. How did that, your beautiful little girl, Zoe, how did that um, impact your practice? How did yoga hold space for you? Or did you have a period of time where you were you were practicing certain elements that were workable for you? <laughs> it is interesting. She's definitely my greatest yoga teacher, I would say. I would call myself a recovering perfectionist. You know, I have certain ideas, especially after doing all that wonderful teacher training in New York, having all the time in the world to be able to do that, you know, <laughs> to suddenly having a newborn and not having any time at all, let alone to wash my own hair. Um, yeah. You know, and suddenly I'm like, oh, I can't even, like, again, time, where's time gone? And what I'm trying to do this and I'm getting constantly interrupted and what's going on. And then I had to find my own journey again and like mm. revisit my own training and come to realize that it's not what I thought it was. If I'm lucky, I get to go to the studio. If, if everything's going smoothly, everyone's fed, <laughs> everyone's, fed everyone's had their rest, no one's fallen sick. And, but that's actually a luxury. Mm. to be able to get to the studio, be able to do an hour's practice on a mat. And so now my practice has just become super, super simple mm. and, and, and different. And I try to make light of it and not take it so seriously. So I pull up my mat and Zoe has her own mat as well. Oh, we, go on the, we go on the floor together. She's got her deck of yoga, kids yoga cards that she pulls out and we do it together. Oh. Probably doesn't last longer than 10 minutes or 15 minutes because, you know, every time I'm done with dogs, she just wants to climb all over me and mm. climb under me and jump on me and, you know, um, doing cobra is my least favorite pose around her. For some reason, she thinks it's an invitation to jump on my lower back, which is absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, yes, but you know that's that's thing. I mean, it's fun. It's not meant to be serious all the time. You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a joy, and I think that's the other thing we forget sometimes yeah. with with yoga and mindfulness meditation. It doesn't have to be serious. Yeah, you, you know, it, it can be, you know, just completely f- fun. Just mm. joyful experience. It doesn't have to be, you know, 60 minutes on my mat doing this and doing that oh, and doing yeah. this posture and that posture. I'm like, no, it, it's not about that. It's just about taking time, being present and being present. Yeah. My daughter is absolutely a yoga practice in itself, mm. you know, and sometimes it's just about stolen moments here and there. Again, I think coming back to that, all you need is just a couple of minutes doing some simple breath work, um, mm. maybe preparing the body before they're doing a simple stretch, a simple twist you know, just, just doing a couple of restorative yin poses every night before din- uh, before bedtime in the yes. morning. Super, super simple. It's just really, Absolutely. really simple stuff, but it's become just part of my life. And I'm so thankful that I actually had that training because I know how to adapt yeah. um, to yeah. um, my life, which is constantly changing all the time and different things are happening all the time, especially when you have kids, it's just so unpredictable. Mm. Um, so 
that's kind of what my practice is. And it's, it's, it's regular in the sense that it's consistent when I'm doing something, but it's not mm. like a consistent, you know, 60 minutes of this particular sequence that, you know, I might've been able to do before kids. I think that's um, really important for yeah. people to hear, though, because, again, the preconceived notions of what a, and I'm saying this in inverted commas, obviously, a yoga practice is, a solid practice, are, it's really, it can be really rigid. And that's wonderful if that's, as you said, it's available to you at that time point in your life. But I wholeheartedly agree that there are time points in our life with the varying responsibilities we have and the unpredictable nature of the ups and downs of existing that the beauty of yoga, and I agree, that's one thing I took away from my training too, is like, hang on, I remember some of these, po- and even if you haven't done teacher training, if you've done enough yoga classes, there are certain postures that resonate with you long term. I've just started getting back into my practice again in the evening, just doing three or four yin practices, uh, postures exactly. before bed. So and need. it's oh, it's so nourishing. So it's need. like I'm sleeping better from it. I can feel the difference in just a few days again. But um. Even for people who are long-term practitioners, that old, those old self-expectations can really show up. It's really fascinating. Exactly. The ego comes in the way. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and then the it's ego. like, hang on again. I need, I need to let go of that. And just, to, as you said, just allow the self-compassion to what's really. And one thing I've noticed, too, is just feeling into well, what does my body really feel like doing right now? Rather than thinking, OK, I've got to do a downward dog or I've got to do yes. a, a sleeping swan rather than okay yeah. what is my feeling in doing that gentle movement and feeling oh, what does my body want what does the what will nourish it right now and it may exactly. not even be any kind of formal yoga pose it might be twisting circling yeah or, or just a joint warm-up just you know yeah. rolling your wrists or something which is not technically you know a yoga pose to so to speak but you know it's still yoga because you're mindful of what's happening and what you need in your body in your exactly. joints yeah absolutely for mm-hmm. sure my, my husband calls yoga as you know jamie um fancy stretching he's like i have my own <laughs> and it is like those movements like he's just actually and i do think i agree it is a form of practice he's just feeling into what his body needs in that moment and of course he'll associate it to being able to go for a kayak or play golf more efficiently or whatever. That's his knock-on impact. But there are all these other, as you really wonderfully shared with us today, all these other beautiful positive impacts um, in terms of mental health and well-being. Leona, I could chat to you all day long. So lovely <laughs> speaking to you about this topic that we both love. But I would love to hear from you just some, you know, some simple tips that you can share with our um, the Mind Dharma community and other people listening in on you know, if they're considering going to a yoga class for the first time, whether it's online or in person, or they haven't practiced for a while, what tips do you think would be helpful for them to keep in mind? So I've read The Power of Habit, Atomic Habits, those books about habit creation. And I've done a bit of research in terms of behavior change maintenance as well myself. And I think what really comes up in terms of having a uh, going back to a practice or, or making this uh, mind-body practices part of your daily habits, and what's really important actually is not to just do one thing, but it's a whole system of things that we need to do, and it really starts with your identity and why is this practice important to you, and why are you know even listening to this podcast in the first place, and what appealed, what was so appealing about mind-body. Why is it something you're interested in? And if you can look and see how that relates to identity and who you are and who you want to become, uh, whether it's just a matter of like, I just want to be calmer. I want to be able to self-regulate better. I want to be able to know myself a little bit better. If you can make that part of your identity 
and then start to do little things and little changes. You know, you don't have to go to a studio to be able to try your first class. Again, two minutes of breathing, deep breathing, regular breathing, counting up to four or five as you inhale, five as you exhale for two minutes. Mm. Starting really, really small. I think where people fall down a lot is when they have very ambitious goals of saying, I'm going to do this 30-day challenge. Mm. And maybe they meet that challenge, but then what happens next month? <laughs> yeah. What happens when a pandemic strikes mm-hmm. or you know some sort of emergency? And it's really difficult to get back on the wagon again. And so I'd always say, just start small. It's a systemic change. It's not overnight. This practice is a lifelong practice, as you mm-hmm. said. And that's exactly what it is, practice, just going back, doing the same old boring thing over and over again and trying to find the joy in it in different ways, and just keeping it really small. And I think just doing that and finding, you know, but it's a different ways of making it stick. So what it's stacking it with an existing habit. So maybe doing this sort of twist or um, little joint warm up after you brush your teeth. Or you know, stacking a, a reward after it. So maybe you do this, and then you have a you reward, reward yourself with a coffee, mm. or maybe you do it with your child. You know, just doing mm. a couple of happy baby poses. You know, nice. kids always love that rolling around their backs. You know, and just also having a friend or a companion to help you and support you, and you know, say, hey, have you done your two minute meditation today? Or no, I mm. didn't, but okay, let's do it together tomorrow. Doing little tips like that. And I think that systemic change and also just remembering it's not about overnight change. It's a journey. And if you forget it, that's okay. Come back to it again. Just start yeah. small. Start small. No one, there's no yoga Olympics. There's no such thing. <laughs> You're not going to get a gold medal. No matter how many, you know, the, how many minutes you spend on your mat or whatever. No one cares. It's yeah. just about you. It's your practice. I and love that, exactly Leona. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. I think that really highlights just the... Like you said, I think how much joy it can be can unfold if we're open and let go of the expectations. And also it, it isn't service to living a ritual, meaningful life, that there is no perfect practice and there's no yoga Olympics. So do what's workable for you. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That'd be very funny if there was a yoga Olympic. Oh my gosh! <laughs> no, no, no. How long can you stay in stillness and meditation for like oh my gosh. days and days? <laughs> um, Leona Tan, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us on the Mind Dharma podcast, and we look forward to having you back again soon when you have your research results, hopefully, and you can share some of, some more insights on this wonderful topic. Thank you so much for having me. The Mindarma podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindarma podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing my dharma into your workplace.